evening and welcome to the National Writers Series event with author Albert Woodfox and guest host Jerome Vaughn. Hi, I'm Lisa Thauvet, a Montessori consultant, an improv performer, and a board member of the National Writers Series. I joined this wonderful nonprofit out of love for creativity, the power of story, and a good laugh. And since we began our Zoom events in April, more than 4,700 people have linked into these author conversations. So give yourself a big round of applause for being part of that success. I also want to thank Cordia, West Shore Bank, the Grand Traverse Humanists, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, the National Endowment for the Humanities, an anonymous friend of National Writers Series, and our very generous donors. Now, let me introduce to you our guest host, Jerome Vaughn, the news director of WDET, who first came onto the NPR affiliate in 1992 to tell the comeback story of Detroit. He is committed to training aspiring public radio journalists and runs the news internship program and was a mentor for NPR's Next Generation Radio. Our author this evening is Albert Woodfox, author of Solitary, Unbroken by Four Decades in Solitary Confinement. This book is an honest, inspirational account of what the human spirit can endure. Albert originally went to the Angola prison as a young man for armed robbery, but was later charged and convicted with no evidence for the murder of a prison guard. After multiple appeals, he was released in 2016, 44 years later. A committed activist in prison, Woodfox continues to speak today to a wide array of audiences, including the Innocence Project, Harvard, and Yale University. Solitary has been chosen as a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, a finalist for the National Book Award, and it was also named as one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2019. High praise indeed. Please join me in welcoming Jerome Vaughn and Albert Woodfox. Mr. Goodfo uh, Mr. Woodfox, good to be with you this evening. I know we're gonna have a great conversation, plenty to ask you about. I am so excited to get a chance to talk to you about your book, Solitary. Uh, I read it uh, and was stunned and elated by um, your, your story, your story of uh, survival uh, in prison. I, I want to start at the beginning. You spend the first part of your book, uh, which is basically laid out in chronological order, talking about your childhood. Um, and you had a really very special relationship with your mom. Tell me a little bit about your mom and how she shaped your life. Well, thank you, Jerome. Uh, uh, you know, for, I'd like to thank the National Rights writer series and, and the staff for giving me this opportunity to come to, to come before the people. Um, yeah, my relationship was unique in the sense that I had no idea what my mom was trying to instill at me at the time. Like most young teenagers, I rebelled and, you know, thought she was trying to control me and rule, uh, rule my life and stuff. But in the most critical point of my life, uh, in prison, and I joined the Black Panther Party, and uh, I began to realize through her examples uh, what she was trying to teach me. My mom was functionally illiterate. She could only read or write her name. But I realized as an adult that she was one of the smartest, wisest women that, you know, had ever, uh, you know, I'd ever known. And it was strange because uh, I became an avaricious reader. And when I was reading uh, the first uh, political book I read, uh, nonfiction was uh, France Fanon's Retreat of the Oath. And, you know, it was so strange because, you know, in reading these works uh, over the decades, you know, I kept saying, 
I've read, I've read this already. I've heard this, and you know, and eventually I realized that this was my mom. You know, I was hearing, uh, you know, in my book there's a poem I wrote as a tribute to my mom, to all moms called Echoes. You know, and I realized that uh, I was hearing the echoes uh, uh, from you know my mom. You know, and and and, and she became my first you know, hero, you know, because I realized uh, the value and the strength and the wisdom that she had uh, had and that she tried to instill in me. And so those principles and, uh, and other qualities of, uh, of humanity were, became the foundation that allowed me to uh, become, you know, to make the transformation from petty criminal to uh, revolutionary activists, uh, organizer, uh, uh, and, and dedicate my life to you know social struggle. You know, social struggle is a lifetime commitment because there will always be the need of uh, social struggle. Uh, and uh, so you know, uh, it was unique in that sense. You know, it was unique in that I, I, the the foundation of who I am right now was laid by a woman who was a victim of a racist system and could barely could read only her name, but who life lessons had given her so much wisdom, so much strength, you know, and I can honestly say that I, the system was so brutal to my mom, but I never saw them break her. I never saw her get discouraged or feel as though, feel, you know, as though she was hopeless. And those are qualities that I drew upon uh, in my four year, uh, 44 years and 10 months of solitary confinement. So yeah, it, it was a very unusual and unique uh, relationship, but one I cherish. And I still hear echoes uh, from my mom, you know. So, Later, as you you know, got into your twenties, uh, you wound up uh, going to Angola Prison in Louisiana, and at some point, you were saying that was actually a, a goal of yours. Um, what did you expect the first time you went to Angola, and how were things different than your expectations? Well, you know, unfortunately, you know. The history of African Americans is we try to take negatives and make positive uh, examples out of them. Uh, uh, and so, uh, during my my uh, young you know, adulthood, prison was a, a bad divine in in a, in, a, in a strange, strange way. You know, if you went to prison and you survived, then you came. You know, you became a a, a, a person to be admired. Uh, it's particularly in, in you know uh, the criminal life or you, we refer to it as the game you know and so uh, that was you know I come up and I was taught that way uh, uh, and so that was one of my my aspirations you know to go to prison I feel so uh, uh, ashamed of that now you know that you know but then you know uh, I real as I became you know uh, uh, aware of the power that I had and that the self-worth I had and that no matter where I was at, I could contribute to humanity. Uh, I began to understand a lot of the forces that shaped uh, me as a young man, particularly African-American. You know. While you were in prison, um, you became acquainted with uh, Black Panthers and the Black Panthers provided a, you know, a pivotal point in your life. What was it that initially grabbed you about their philosophy and why was that something that stayed with you throughout your life? Well, you know, in the 60s, when the Panthers came on the scene and the uh, dramatic interest they made, you know, 
uh, everyone was aware. I had a peripheral awareness of the Panther, but at that time, I, you know, uh, I uh, have, have admitted I was just a petty criminal, uh, preying on my own uh, community and my own people. And so they didn't really have any impact. Uh, the impact came uh, when I was in the house of detention. I had escaped. I had been convicted for armed robbery, sentenced to 50 years. I was 22 years old. I couldn't even begin to understand that much time. And so at that one first opportunity, I escaped. And I eventually wound up in New York and I was arrested uh, on an extradition warrant. And the Panther 21 event uh, occurred during that time. And four members from those 21 Panthers were placed on the on eighth floor where I was housed at. And so I became acquainted, acquainted intimately with the Panthers and what they believed, the philosophy of the party and stuff. But uh, at first, you know, I was listening to what they were saying, but I wasn't hearing. And a guy, a, a older guy came down from upstate New York and he was in the cell with me. And uh, he gave me a book to read. And it was the first step on the journey that I'm still on. The book was called A Different Drummer. And the author was William Riley Kelly, you know. And, and so after reading that book, uh, it was the first book that I had actually read from cover to cover. And so after reading that book, and so I, I, I started hearing what, what the Panther Brothers on the Chair was uh, saying, you know, the, uh, and understand and drawing connections and, and began to realize that I was not who I really am. I was who the system had made me because of the uh, racist policies from economics to political to social, uh, et cetera, you know. And so there, be, there began the first step of, uh, you know, re-educating myself and developing moral principles and values along the line of what my mom had been trying to teach me as a young man. So, so tell me a little bit more about that transformation. One of the things that, that I noticed through the book was, um, you know, you became more selfless. You became more of a protector of uh, innocence. Uh, you talk about, um, protecting the newer prisoners as uh, they moved in. Tell me a little bit about how that transformation worked for you. Well, you know, at that, at that particular time, I hadn't joined a party, but because of the reading and the influence of the uh, party, uh, I had began to develop, uh, as I said, moral principles and values of, uh, of, uh, of a protector rather than a uh, a uh, predator, you know, uh, in prison at that time, it hadn't changed too much. Uh, you know, uh, when new prisoners come in, uh, particularly amongst African-American, we make victims out of them, you know. Uh, we either intimidate them or jump on them or in some cases rape them, take their property and stuff like that. And so, uh, you know, once, once I started on this journey, uh, I started to understand uh, that this this was morally wrong. That this this was, you know, it was it was a stand upon humanity, and uh, to just be aware of it and not do anything was a total waste of the knowledge I had accumulated. So I, I decided to actively uh, put myself in harm's way if necessary to to protect some of these uh, young prisoners coming in, you know. As you know, I, I speak about it in my book in Angola. Uh, uh, they had a thriving uh, sex slave market going on in which security people and the prison administrators uh, profited from because they allowed guys, sexual predators in, in prison population to prey on these young kids and they used physical violence and, and the time they used turn them out otherwise, you know, force them into a life of sexual slavery, you know. So one of the things Harmon and I did as our, our, our party members, we had established the only recognized chapter of Black Panther Party in a prison 
is we formed what was called an anti-rape squad. And so on the day that these young kids would come in and it was called Fresh Fish Day. Uh, so we start going down and meeting them, you know, they would come in on the bus and challenge the sexual predators who was also there and get into these kids and talking to them and explaining to them, you know, uh, how prison was and trying to explain to them so they could recognize some of the traps that was involved and also providing physical protection, you know, letting them know that if somebody tried to forcibly uh, 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 rape them or anything, you know, to come to us and, and, and we would go to, to that individual and put him in check, you know, and tell him, you know, no, this ain't gonna happen. This, you know, this is, you know, and I think although it didn't last that long, it was very successful. And I'm sorry to say that one of the one of the brothers who joined uh, the chapter uh, Black Panther Party prison chapter, his name was Irvin Bro. Uh, they call him Life, uh, and he lost his life trying to protect one of the kids. This was after, you know, the Brent Miller uh, uh, murder and investigation and stuff that I was locked up for. You, you you mentioned uh, Herman and uh, he plays a really large role uh, in the book and in your life. Uh, how, how did the two of you initially meet and what was it that what was it that clicked uh, between the two of you? Well, Herman and I, and, and along with uh, Robert King, Robert King, the other member, you know, we became a political group known as the Angola Tree. Uh, Harmon and our first connection was as, as comrades in the party. He had also joined the party. Uh, and so we became, uh, this is one of the few pictures that, uh, uh, you know, we took, were allowed to take uh, the ancestors uh, arranged it so we would have visits at the same time. And uh, but other than that, the uh, uh, Department of Correction and prison officials uh, made it a point uh, to keep us separate from one another. And Harmon and I, uh, the first time we were allowed to uh, be together, it was uh, almost 30 something years, was in uh, 2008, uh, because of a civil suit we had filed challenging long-term cell confinement. Uh, they created a, uh, a dormitory and it was supposed to be transitional but that was only in, in, in theory it wasn't in the reality but uh Harmon and I were placed in that dormitory at the same time and so it had been 30 almost 30 years uh and we had a lot of catching up to do but our original connection was as comrades and over the decades a very you know a very unique friendship between Harmon and Robert and myself developed, you know. And without without their influence, without their support, I don't think I would have been as successful uh, as uh, we were in organizing prisoners uh, in Angola against, you know, inhumane uh, uh, conditions or. Uh, a violation of human rights and legal rights and constitutional rights as they exist in this country. You know, so they gave me uh, the strength at times of weakness. You know, and, and they gave me wisdom at times when you know I couldn't see things clearly. And uh, so, you know, it, uh, if you read my book, you you will realize that uh, this was a. a, a, a unusual friendship uh, between three men, you know. Started out as comrades and became much more uh, because of our uh, similar experiences. Well, yeah, I mean, through the book, you can see that the, the three of you are uh, really connected in a way that uh, really fed the three of you uh, continually. And at one point you uh, mentioned in the book, uh, you know, that uh, you and Herman had a, a line from uh, Star Trek uh, 
that you would throw back and forth where uh, essentially you would end your letters saying, you know, never apart. Uh, yeah. that, that, that is a unique connection. Um, tell me a little bit more about that, because I think that's a connection that most folks don't have. Yeah, you know, well, the thing uh, that was so astounding even to us was that we were on separate tiers, but we used to communicate through letters. You know, we had to develop our own code of uh, communicating and, and, and that we would express uh, views and theories on how to uh, react to what was going on in the prison that were almost as though we were living together you know and we had had uh discussions you know and so the, we we developed a very powerful spiritual connection uh and we, we to the point where we saw the world almost uh, the same and so that's where that comes from uh you know uh, separated but never apart you know uh, uh, you know never touching but always connected you know I, even now even though we lost Harmon uh, three or four days after he won his freedom, uh, uh, you know, I still feel his, his influence and I can still hear his, this laugh. He had a laugh that was bigger than life, you know, and I can still uh, remember the, the arguments we had, the political debates and, and stuff, you know, and fortunately I still have Robert uh, here and we spent a lot of time, we traveled, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, we've traveled around America, universities and community organizations and stuff. And, you know, we use the time to raise the level of conscience of the people who are, uh, we have an opportunity to, to come to, uh, in front of, you know. One of the things that um, you, you talk about uh, helping to uh, transform you uh is is reading is education um you became a voracious reader and you got to the point where you were reading law books and learning about law so that uh you could write appeals how did that, that, that no that was a necessary tool of survival you know up until that point you know, most of our resistance had been a physical in the, in the, in the form of a hunger strikes and uh, refusing to go back in our cells because of certain uh, things security was doing or a certain policy that the administration was trying to force upon us. And, but, you know, we realized, uh, Robin and I eventually lived on the same tier together for a very long time. And we began to realize that those nightsticks really do hurt. And that gas really affects you, you know. And we couldn't, we had to find another way to struggle. And so we came up to the conclusion that, you know, because of the aberration reading uh, we were doing and the material we were getting, uh, we, we, we realized that we had to find a new way to struggle. And so the law was it. But the problem was, and you know, outside of Robert, who had a limited understanding of the law, we didn't have any idea about the law, the code system, how it works, the language. You know, we eventually learned that the language is different. Uh, due pro the court is more concerned with due process than justice, and 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 so you know, that's that's how I started uh, reading law books and and, and stuff. You know. Uh, to teach myself, all three of us, you know. Uh, Robin and I had the benefit of playing off of each other because we were housed on the same tier together. And so that, you know, that, you know, was how we, uh, you know, first we taught ourselves civil law because, you know, and all the challenge, some of what we felt was inhumane and unconstitutional practices by both security and administration. So we started filing uh, what's called a 1983 tort action, it's a civil rights uh, uh, complaint. And so, you know, after months, I mean, I can remember uh, so many nights sitting in my cell on my floor and having four and five law books spread out around me, trying to understand, you know, uh, this case 
would see this and this case would take away from that stuff. So you try to develop a legal language uh, where you can present your issues before the court uh, in a manner in which the court won't dis dismiss your, or your uh, civil rights action as being frivolous, you know. So that's how that came about. But overall, we, you know, the fact that we were in a party, we had joined a party and we had developed a level of consciousness. We knew that the cell, the nine by six cells we were housed in for 23 hours a day. We knew that those cells were designed to be a debt chamber. And we knew that the only way we had to, of surviving it was to turn them into something different. So we turned ourselves into schools and universities and debate halls and law clinics. And, and you know, we developed uh, abilities beyond what was expected of uh, prisoners, even more so someone housing. Uh, that, that's a picture of uh, me and uh, 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 the time in Angola CCR, closed cell restricted. I was being interviewed by an inmate journalist. Uh, there's a paper in Angola called Angola Life. And, and the, uh, the article was about uh, uh, the time they used the planet, meaning people who was planted in CCR or solitary and was never getting out. You know? And uh, one of the guys who uh, was with the journalist was a photographer. And he was taking pictures for a thing, but that's how you had to travel anytime you left out your cell uh, in CCR. You know, you had to have those kind of restraints on you. Know? So, you know, throughout the book, uh, we, we watch you grow and change. There's, there's a section here I just want to read. Solitary confinement is used as a punishment for the specific purpose of breaking a prisoner. Nothing relieved the pressure of being locked in a cell 23 hours a day. In 1982, after 10 years, I still had to fight an unconscious urge to get up, open the door, and walk out. All of us in CCR were dealing with strong, powerful uh, emotions at the time, maybe the strongest that exist, the fear of losing control over yourself the fear of losing your mind. Every day is the same. The only thing that changes is whatever change you can construct on your own. Given that, how did that experience in solitary confinement change you, shape you? It was so much a part of your life for so many years. Yeah, you know, there is something inside of all of, all of us. You know, we don't, we, we can't find a word, the right word or what we feel is the right word to describe it. And I was lucky enough to realize that my mom had instilled in me through her day-to-day -day action, you know, determination, strength, a strong sense of loyalty and devotion. So I had committed myself totally uh, to revolutionary, we, we use the term revolutionary principles, which really is the principles of being a good human being. And so, uh, uh, you know, I watched so many men being broken. I watched so many men uh, going insane. I watched men hurt themselves, cut themselves. I watched men kill themselves uh, by hanging or cutting up. Uh, themselves so the bill at their wrist, they bleed to death. And uh, every time I had to witness this, it became more of a challenge to me than, uh, you know, a fear. It became a challenge. I am not going to be that. I am not going to let these people drive me to that. I'm not going to let them strip me of my humanity. I'm not going to let them take away the principles and the values that I've uh, developed and, from, and dedicated my life to. And so, you know, again, uh, I was sitting down, uh, as a matter of fact, when I read Echoes, you know, one day I was sitting down on the bunk uh, in my cell and I was perplexed by something. And I heard one of my mother's echoes, you know, and, uh, and I just pick up, uh, 
a writing pad and a pen and I wrote that poem uh, in one take. I didn't, you know, I didn't stumble. I didn't uh, get stuck on words or what. It just as if though she was, you know, reciting it in my head and I was putting it down on paper, you know. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, I came again. Now, the one thing I'm truly happy about is I was able to sit across from my mom and hold her at the time she was dying from cancer and tell her how much she had, you know, uh, taught me and how much her wisdom and her strength was a part of who I was, you know. And uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, I can't say enough about my mom, you know, and all the mothers, you know. I, she was she was unique as an individual, but she was a part of a very large, uh, you know, uh, world, you know, of, of women, especially African American women. You know. Really, much of your story is is about the idea of 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 struggle, and I, I've got to admit that you know, when I was reading the book. I got angry. I got angry just reading the book. And and you have a strength that you exhibit through the book. Talk a little bit about that strength and and how did you keep anger from really eating you alive? Because the things that were done to you were unjust, atrocious, and and just astonishing. You know, again, you know, uh, there is something in me, something my mom instilled in me, something she passed on to me, and would not allow them to, you know, uh, to define who I was. I had defined. I had, you know, after about twenty something years of reading and reeducating myself. I had developed the ability to develop moral principles and values, a code of conduct, and stuff, and and dedicate myself to uh, the way I wanted, to, the kind of human being I wanted to be, and how I wanted to uh, spend my life. Uh, you know, trying to help humanity become better. And I, it was just something in me, you know, uh, uh, you know, um, Harmon. Uh, he wrote a a poem, I think he said, and in that he says, uh, you know, the deeper they bury me, the louder my voice. And that was our attitude, you know, the more they inflicted pain upon us, the more stronger they made us, you know, the more uh, uh, determined we, we were not to allow them to break us. And the fact that we knew that, you know, all of the men who lived around us or even throughout the prison, we had become, you know, like a beacon of inspiration, you know. Uh, I remember the first time in 2008, and uh, I had my first contact visit. And, and it was so strange because I had been, a, you know, used to being in a cell by myself. And then being in this dormitory with all this space. And, uh, and then the first visit, uh, all of these guys in the and the building kept coming to my table, you know, and it, you know, excuse me, Mr. Woodfox, I don't want to take up too much. I just want, you know, tell you how proud I am of you all, what you're doing and stuff, you know. And I think for the first time for me, there was an emotional uh, connection, you know, that, you know, I didn't just see me a certain way, but other men saw me a certain way. Other men, counted on me and like one one brother said you know you then he said i'm not gonna lie to you these people have broken me he said but you, what you are doing what you're doing what you're doing what Harmon doing and what robert doing has given me strength you know i'm on the way back you know so i began to realize then how important uh, it was to, you know, not allow myself to be controlled or allow myself to be broken, uh, to give up hope and stuff, because it wasn't just about me now. 
It was about other men that I could give strength to, give hope to and stuff. So those are the kind of things that helped me to endure 44 years and 10 months of solitary, you know, and all the feedings and the gassings and, you know, uh, some of the most horrific acts of inhumanity against me and Robert and Harmon. You know. As you um, worked on your legal case and uh, the three of you uh, plotted out uh, appeals uh, and early on appeals were uh, denied. How did you, I don't know, did, did you, did you ever think you'd get to this point where you'd be out? I mean, you felt like you were, you were doing great work where you were. Did you feel like you'd ever get, get out? I never lost hope that I would be free. As a matter of fact, uh, my book and, you know, uh, my fiance who's sitting uh, next out of camera reach, uh, you know, her, she really had to have the credit for the tone of the book. The contents, the experiences, the words, all that were mine, but it was less who put them in the perspective, you know, she kept me honest throughout uh, the whole process. And, you know, so she deserves as much credit as I do for, you know, the influence that this book may have on our humanity. Let me ask this question of, of both of you, because I know she is there as well. Um, what, tell me about the process of, of putting this book together. Um, of, of working together to chronicle the experiences, but also at the same time showing the world that, well, this needs to change. Well, you know, Les is an extraordinary, and I'm not saying it's because, you know, she's my fiance. Oh she's an extraordinary human being by any measure of humanity. Uh, she gave up a very lucrative career to become caregivers for her mom, uh, who was suffering from uh, dementia at the time. And eventually her mom, her dad as, as well, who she lost to, to cancer, you know. And so Les, when I met Les, it was in uh, 90, 1998. I was, uh, had been granted a trial and I was in a, a Parish called Tangible Hall, uh, uh, Amen City Jail. And less some kind of way she had found out about the case and she had contacted me through the mail and wanted to know if she could interview me. And I'm like, well, at the time she was working for Pacifica Radio. Well, actually and, it was a, a phone call. It was yeah. my phone, my, when Albert's brother had reached out to the radio station, I was in New York City but the first, our first interview happened to be the day, the same day that Albert was convicted. This was an interview that his brother and I prearranged and his brother passed Albert a note and said, call me collect at this hour. And this reporter wants to ask you some questions. And um, that was the day that he had been convicted. And I thought, okay, this guy at the time had been in solitary for 27 years. He was just convicted of a murder that he says he didn't commit. And I thought he'd be, like you said, Jerome, angry. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect, crazy. And, um, you know, Albert was just the way he sounds now. And he said, it wasn't the jury's fault. They didn't get the right inf information. Albert's lawyer had said, the jury put the Black Panther Party on trial. The jury convicted the Black Panther Party. And um, I was so, uh, blown away by his mental state and his philosophical state of being and after what he'd been through. And we knew that once they transferred him back to Angola, I wouldn't be able to interview <clears throat> him and record it. And so I went down to this small town and um, interviewed him and uh, did a documentary for Pacifica Radio that was aired on Democracy Now! in 1999. So I've known him all this time and the writing process was a lot of um, interviewing Albert 
and then and just knowing the story you know being there at the beginning of the support committee meeting all the lawyers along the way understanding what the legal you know all the you know kind of details of the ins and outs of the civil suit and the the criminal case and King's story and Herman's story. So, and I knew everyone's family, the three of their family. And so we just, it just kind of evolved from that. So when and Albert got out of prison and asked me to help him, I, I just wanted the story to be accurate and like a testimony to what this country is capable of. And I wanted people like my dad to read it who doesn't know nothing about the criminal justice system, but still get that feeling of, oh, this isn't fair, you know, what this guy went through. This, this just feel like the same, sh like shock about what happened instead of, oh, it's another African-American man who was in prison. And, you know, that was kind of where I was coming from. And 11,000 arguments later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are, uh, you know, because less uh, at the time, uh, you know, uh, as I say, our family was going through some traumatic things. So most of our other uh, book uh, uh, we did over over laptops, you know, and and, and so yeah. we would argue about issues. And I'm like, no, that's not me. I don't talk like that. And you know, and, and, and it was that we were yeah. both very, very sensitive to getting the voice right to making sure it was Albert's voice. Um, I mean, he just told stories now, like I verbatim from the book because, you know, that was in that, in that way, it was like a dream to work with him because every interview we did was completely productive. There's just always good stuff there. It the hard part was getting him to dig deep and tell stories that were extremely painful to remember. And, um, but he was very, uh, you know, he wanted it all. He wanted it all in there. And there were, whenever there was something super sensitive, um, the reports from the psychiatrists and whatnot that were in there. And I asked him, do you want to keep it in? And he'd say, well, let's keep it in for now. And then we'll see. And he never took anything out. He left everything in there. So, it was, it was that kind of process and it was hard, you know, but it was, now that it's over, it feels like it was easy. <laughs> well, uh, I'll, I'll say thank you for doing that, uh, for, for leaving it all in. Um, I think uh, it really is illustrative of many things. Um, and, We've got a lot of folks who have chimed in and are asking questions. So I'm going to go through a couple of these for you. Um, uh, uh, Patricia asks, what are one or two things you learned from the enormous amount of alone time that you experienced? How strong I was. Yeah, how strong I was, you know. Uh, my world was one that was filled with constant chaos uh, people are going insane uh, people hurting themselves and finding out a way not to let that happen to me not to let the system uh, break me to the point where you know i didn't value my life or my, my and never forgetting that i had power you know, that no matter what they did to me, I had still had power. And so that, you know, was my, my the way I looked at my experiences. Okay. Uh, Daphne says, as mentioned, as I read your book and all that was inflicted on you, I wonder how you managed to stay calm and how today, if you encountered someone who is racist, uh, how it would feel. Uh, and, and Daphne also asks, do you hold any trauma, triggers, or actual injuries from uh, your time uh, in prison? I'm so inspired by you, you humble me. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately there is, you know, uh, it's been, you know, uh, okay, now I get claustrophobic attacks. And sometime I wake up and I'm disorientated. I don't know where I'm at. Uh, 
um, you know, I wish I could see five minutes of sync, but I, you know, that's the one thing you seem to lose is a sense of time when you're going through this. Uh, uh, you know, I, you know, the claustrophobic tax. The one thing I did learn about that is you you can be in the, in a crowd and and still have a claustrophobic attack. Uh, I have two uh, of a wonderful family and uh, my great niece and great nephew was at swim swim meet and I went along with the family uh, and uh, we were sitting down and then all of a sudden, you know, there's like the very ad self started to press down on me and I immediately uh, recognize what was happening and, and uh, not at that moment but later on I was really shocked that you know I had a club you know I did get up uh, I told my uh, uh, my uh, nephew and, and my niece and my brother who was there you know I said I, I forgot something in the car you know I just wanted to go somewhere where I could pace you know that was my solution uh, in the cell to pace up and down uh, the cell until uh, they passed. And I, I, again, I don't know how long I was gone. It must have been long enough because my brother came out and he, you know, he saw me walking and he said, what's wrong? He, you know, and I'm like, oh, nothing, you know, I just, something was on my mind. I didn't want to, you know, uh, you know, my brother, Michael, who has been my rock for the last 50 years. I didn't want to, you know, Put him through any kind of trauma so i just played it off and you know went back in but in heights you know site i was somewhat shocked because it happened you know and we were in us uh, at the university and we were in a, a swimming facility and they had hundreds and hundreds of people in their family members and stuff you know and that you know i experienced this you know and so it's been a while now since I've had one. A uh, couple of weeks ago, I did wake up and, you know, I was disorientated. I didn't know where I was at. And eventually, you know, I snapped, you know, back to reality. Uh, so those are, those are the emotional and psychological thing. As far as uh, all the physical thing, uh, sometimes, you know, I'm 73 now. And things I used to laugh off at 20, you know, sometimes it's really hard getting up out of the bed, you know. So, you know, I, uh, but I, I, you know, with everything that happened, someone once asked me uh, if I could change anything, what would I change, you know? And without even my moment's hesitation, I said nothing. Because what I went through made me the human being I am now. It gave me, you know, the strength and determination. Uh, it gave me the compassion and empathy for other people, you know. And uh, I haven't talked about this a lot, but I have talked about it with less. I'm so ashamed of some of the things that I did as a young man when I was a petty criminal. And although my community has accepted me and forgiven me, I still have problems forgiving myself, you know. Uh, to cause another human being that kind of pain and that kind of suffering, you know. As far as the anger, I went through very years of anger, you know, and as you have experience and you develop wisdom and you get older, I begin to realize that it takes far more energy to be angry and to be filled with hatred than it does to, you know, forgive or, 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 and, you know, try to build a foundation of positive uh, in the way you are, then, you know, and, and so I chose to, you know, uh, to not just not be angry, you know, to be progressive, to move forward. Every time I accomplish something, this interview or this conversation right now, I beat my enemies. You know, the people who spent 44 years and 10 months trying to destroy me, you know, they, they lose. 
And so, you know, uh, that's, that plays a, a great part in, in who I am right now. So, so let me ask this question. I'll go back to what some of the audience uh, wants to ask, but I want to ask, you said that, um, why was it in your mind that so many of the people who uh, kept you in prison, who lied about uh, the things that you did, um, you know, who had their own agendas, uh, anywhere from other prisoners all the way up to uh, the warden, all the way up to courts, why were they so vehemently against you? Because they couldn't break me. They couldn't break Harmon, they couldn't break Robin. And we even had offers uh, periodically, and we would agree to be good little boys and to go back down in the prison population and just stay out of trouble. Uh, they would let us out, and, you know, and, uh, you know, 44 years or 10 months later, they got the answer. They wanted you to renounce the Black Panther. Yeah, they wanted me to renounce the Black Panther Party. They wanted me to renounce uh, my personal philosophical views, my social views, my political, economic, every, otherwise, the person who I was, they wanted me to renounce that. They might not have saw it that way, but that's the way I saw it. They wanted me to renounce myself. And that just wasn't going to happen. So Sherry asked, uh, do you feel there's been a significant change in the social situation of Black people from the time you went to prison compared to today? You know, it was so strange. When I was in prison, uh, you know, we went from only being allowed a Bible in ourselves, but through struggle, through hunger strikes, and teaching ourselves the law and filing civil action and stuff. We eventually gained, you know, TVs and radios, the use of them and stuff. And so uh, when I got out of prison, my only uh, point of reference was what I saw on TV. But after being about about three weeks, I realized that America was as racist as it was in 1969 when I was sent to prison, that nothing, all it changed was in technology and superficial or social or, or presentations that, you know, the value of African-American people was still the same, the value of other minorities was still the same, the value of poor people, working class people was still the same. The language had changed, uh, the methods, the techniques, but it was still the same, you know, and and it was quite a shock to me, you know, to be honest, because uh, I thought we had, you know, as a country had come uh, for, and for a while I, I really questioned whether or not I had, uh, uh, you know, was being fair, you know, whether or not I was, uh, somewhere deep inside of me, some bitterness was clouding my, my analysis of uh, what I was seeing and what I was experiencing, what I was feeling. And then uh, Donald Trump come along, you know? And I'm like, you were right all, all, all the while, you know? Uh, so uh, Leslie asks, what can people who are not in prison do to help change living conditions and communicate dignity and respect to prisoners? Get involved, uh, oversight committees. You know, prison, prisons are not, prisons only change two ways, uh, political pressure or court ruling. People can get involved in groups or church organizations or whatever who have a, a prison agendas and you know oversight 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 you know and demand make demands uh, on the legislators to, to pass statutory uh, laws uh, that with 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 uh, repercussions for prison people prison better security people who can be very brutal uh, against prisoners uh, and you know, let them know that there there is a price to pay when when they act a certain way 
uh, and treat uh, the men and women and children in some case who they are charged with uh, guarding uh, in institutions. Uh, and so that's, you know, you have to get involved to empathize and sympathize is not enough. You know, we always uh, preach, you know, uh, we we try to, we use the term raising people level of confidence with our conversation, making them aware, uh, giving them a, a, a insight, uh, sharing our wisdom with them and raising their level of confidence. Now, I truly believe that in life, an individual or an event raises your level of consciousness. What do you do once you realize that all of your life or a large part of your life, you have believed in something that is not true, something is not humane, something is not uh, progressive, or you know, something that not does not raise humanity up, uh, but you know, suppresses it. Uh, brutalizes uh, and in some cases uh, uh, kill people, you know. Um, Marilyn says, uh, I'd love to send your book to an incarcerated youth we know, but afraid they won't let it in. Any experience on whether your book has made it into prisons? Yeah, it's strange, you know, because at first uh, they wouldn't let it into Angola or any of the uh, uh, institutions in Louisiana. And then uh, some progressive lawyers start getting the book in, and they, and the, and the prison population actually took my book and made copies of it, and was passing it around. So yes, it, you know, uh, uh, every every state has different policies. Uh, the, some court rulings have uh, been in favor of uh, the state, and some have been against the state. And so the book. Yeah, my book has made it into the prison system in Louisiana and obviously and in New York. And yeah, in New York, California. You know, I, I, I get a lot of uh, messages from guys all around the country thanking us for what we did and for the, the examples we set, and, but most of all for not allowing them to break us, you know. Uh, Karen says, thank you for inspiring all of us to be better selves, given how young you were when you were first sentenced. How do you think we should approach sentencing and imprisoning young people today? Well, I think, and you know, uh, my, my view is that the conserv conservative movement in this country spent decades of getting mitigating circumstances out of the court system. Uh, the court system as it is now seems to only be concerned with due process. Otherwise, guilt or innocence or justice is not a part, uh, you know, of, of the court system now. Uh, uh, and so we we are we are working now. Uh, Robert and I we are endorsing candidates and stuff who trying to bring a new perspective to the judicial system and from the district attorney to judges, uh, to legislators, uh, you know, and uh, that's the only way, you know, we're not just using, you know, our insight as to what's going on in the prison system, but we're actually trying to do something about it. And so, you know, uh, you have to, you have to, you have, you have to take a stand, you know. Locally, just. Yeah. Be aware of what's happening locally, in the yeah. with the district attorney's office. Who's in? Who's making those calls? Who's in charge? Yeah. But obviously, I mean, I think it's well reported that the youth in this. I mean, that that the young people are getting charged, especially people of color, much higher rates, much longer sentences than. Um, no, 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 than non, minorities. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, we are, uh, I think one of the things Robert and I are very proud of is that, of course, surviving South Texas Fire, Robert did 29 years, Herman did uh, 41, and I did 44, 10. Uh, we think that we've been successful in starting a national and international debate about 
solitary. Most most people have no idea what solitary is and, and the abuse and the horrors of it and how it's being used. And I think we, since I've been out, going on five years and Robert, uh, of course we lost Herman four days after winning this freedom uh, to cancer. Uh, I think we've been very successful in starting a national dialogue. Uh, and we, we are seeing some movements uh, as far as solitary confinement. Uh, our ultimate goal is to, to, to abolish the use of it. Uh, but in, in the meantime, we are trying to, you know, put the guidelines on what can and can uh, happen in solitary, how long you can be uh, kept in solitary. Pregnant, no pregnant yeah, women. Yeah, we, we have been successful in getting a bill passed where pregnant women cannot be put in solitary and, and juvenile and yeah, and, 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 and uh, you know, insanity, you know, people who are insane, you know, uh, mental, people mental, mental, mental retardation or mental uh, issues, you know. And so, you know, as I see, you know, there have some, been some tiny steps made uh, but our ultimate goal is to eliminate the solitary altogether in, in the prison systems. So. A number of people have asked uh, what some of your favorite or most influential uh, authors were that you were reading. Ooh. Uh, you know, of course, France for nine, the first uh, political book I read from cover. You know, a retro or you know, I learned about social revolution and the factors in society that cause revolution, and that revolution is is possible. Uh, France Fanon, uh, Nelson Mandela was a favorite. You know, he taught me that if a cause is noble, you could carry the weight of the world on your shoulder, and I I benefited greatly from that over the decades of solitary. Uh, I loved uh, Michelle Alexander, uh, the new Jim Crow, Tanahishi, uh, Between the World and Me, you know, uh, Malcolm X. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my favorite uh, historian and anthropologist, uh, most people don't know about him, is J.A. Rogers. You know, he wrote seven volume, volumes called Sex and Race, uh, From Superman to Man, Great Men of Color, uh, you know, these these were great books, you know. Uh, I think the book that helped me uh, define uh, the difference between racism and prejudice was uh, a book called A Nature of Prejudice. It was written in the 50, uh, 50s by a German uh, social artist, uh, Gardner Al Alcourt. Al yeah, yeah, and so those are some of the books and I read a lot of fiction, as I say, I became an average reader. And, uh, but I tried to read uh, authors who I became aware of who did impeccable research. And they took the facts and, and, and wove fiction around it or into it to tell stories. You know? So those are some of the people. Martin Luther King, uh, you know, I read his, some of his words, uh, you know, it, and the list go on and on, you know. Uh, you know, um, we, we've got I always just real quickly. I always, uh, I was amazed when I realized that Harriet Tubman was the real Wonder Woman, the first Wonder Woman. You know, that's that's great. I, I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna use that uh, quote uh, a few places. Uh, we've got time for a couple more questions. Daphne wants to know. What kind of things do you like to do nowadays? Do you, do you still like to read? Um, you know, what what's life like in 2020 for you? Uh, prior to the pandemic, uh, a lot of travel. You know, Robin and I have been fortunate. We've been to some of the universities I never thought I had anything to say that they would be interested in. Uh, We've been uh, around the world. We've been in extensively in Europe, uh, you know, Germany, France, England, uh, Amsterdam, Belgium, uh, uh, 
you know, so, but now with the pandemic and, you know, my age and I do have some uh, preconditions uh, uh, and less <laughs> reminds me, you know, uh, so I'm kind of like trying to, I spend a lot of time, time at home now. We go out only when necessary. And, you know, of course we follow the CDC guidelines with masks and social distancing. And, uh, and you know, I make it a point that, well, as a matter of fact, Les and I, uh, we have to vote uh, as a runoff uh, uh, in the city uh, for district and some judges uh, Saturday. So we'll be, uh, you know, at the poll voting. I've voted every year since I've been out. Your uh, stop sign with Zoom meetings. Yeah, uh, I've uh, helped start a group called Louisiana Stop Solitary Committee. And there's another group by a good friend and former prisoner called Vote, Voice of the Experience. Uh, his name is Norris Henderson, who did a lot of great things when we were in prison and, and you know, helping us with law books and smuggling, reading materials and stuff to us. And so, you know, but at home, uh, I do still do some reading, not as much as I used to, uh, because, you know, I have so many other influences uh, now uh, when you're in a cell 23 hours a day, uh, you know, and especially in like the first 10 years, no TVs and nothing like that, you know, you have a lot of time. And uh, so I would bury myself in books. And I read from the most political books, economic books, uh, fiction. I read a lot of fiction, as I say, you know, uh, because the first book I read that started me on this journey was a fictional piece, as I said, a different drama. And it was uh, based upon the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North, the East and the West, looking for promised land, only to find, you know, hell is very wide, you know. Uh, just just have time for one more question. And um, Anne wants to know, has your book been optioned for a movie? Yes, and uh, two-time Academy Award winner Mahershala Ali uh, is the executive producer of the movie. Uh, uh, it, the script is being worked on now, and uh, hopefully, with you know, maybe next year or two, you know, we'll be ready for uh, the screening. You know, I wrote my book and, and Robert. Robert wrote a book uh, called. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, on the bottom of the heap. And uh, and my book, both of those will be inculcated in, into this movie. You know? All right, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you both, uh, Leslie George and Albert Woodfox. Thanks so much for the time. It Thank has you. been- Thank you for having us. Yeah. Fabulous to talk to you. I wish we had another six hours to chat. <laughs> so do I. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming. Again, I hope you will buy a copy of Solitary, named as one of Barack Obama's favorite books of 2019. Thanks again to Cordia, West Shore Bank, the Grand Traverse Humanists, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks for coming. 